All right. Riverwest Church, good to be with you again today. It's been great to see you the last couple of weeks at these prayer gatherings we've been having right here in the sanctuary uh, to pray with you and sing with you. We're having another one tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Love to have you. And then a Wednesday at noon and, of course, a Friday at 8 a.m., and you just RSVP for those. Go to the happenings or go to our webpage. You'll find a way to RSVP. But come on out and pray with us. And right now, would you do this? Pull out your Bible and open with me to the book of Ephesians. Yes, we're going to perhaps my favorite book in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, as we continue in our series, I Will Build My Church, especially this sub-series of that where we're looking at God's beautiful vision for ethnic unity and diversity. And today, I'm extremely excited because we come to, by far, the most important, the most hopeful, and the most practical sermon in this entire little sub-series. Today, we're going to talk about racial reconciliation and we're going to go to Ephesians 2 to do it. Now, a couple things I want to say here. I, listen, I want, to, I want to be really honest with you. I recognize that this has been a charged couple of Sundays for some people in our church. I get it, okay? And I recognize we're, we're living in an age where, in many ways, we have been trained by our society and by the media and the news to hear certain things, even certain sermons through some filters, okay? They're, and they're, they're politically charged filters. And so let me clarify a couple things right out of the gate here. I'm just gonna put my cards on the table, okay? The first thing I want you to know is my agenda is not to spank white people, okay? My agenda, my goal is not to make white people feel bad about themselves. I love white people. I'm white, okay? I don't know if you noticed that. My last name is McMurray. It's like the whitest name you could possibly have, all right? So my goal is not to make white people feel bad. I'm not setting out to be a proponent of critical race theory, okay? In fact, I, I, I have many, many problems with critical race theory. Just ask Pastor Christopher. He's had to put up with me constantly talking about it. I can assure you I've read more than anyone I know about critical race theory. I'm not a proponent of critical race theory. I'm not a Marxist. I don't hate America. I'm not a socialist, all right? My heart as a pastor is to do what pastors should do which is open the Bible and talk about the things that matter to the heart of God. And actually, the fact that this series has been charged for people tells me that we're doing the right thing. That we need to go to the scriptures because folks, we're living in a world where people are having their views formed about really important issues like racial tension without going to the scriptures. And that's true for people on the right and people on the left. And so let me tell you something about me. I believe in racial reconciliation. I have to because I believe the Bible. Amen? Every single one of you should be saying amen. Hit that little thumbs up sign on YouTube. 
I believe you should believe in racial reconciliation if you love the heart of God and if you love the Bible. I believe in racial reconciliation because I believe that from Genesis to Revelation, God has been revealing his vision for a multi-ethnic, beautifully unified, but diverse people of Jesus from every tribe, nation, tongue, eternally worshiping God. I believe that the church is supposed to be a foretaste in this world of that heavenly reality, a sign of the unity of the, to the human race that will one day be perfectly achieved. The, the church, the great illustration that I've heard is the church is like the trailer to a movie, a really good trailer that shows you all of the best parts of the movie that's coming. That's what the church is in the world when it comes to ethnic diversity and unity. And I believe this. And you need to believe it too. And we're gonna do what we've done through this whole series. We're gonna open our Bibles and let God's word take our breath away with a vision of these things. And there's no better place to go than Ephesians 2. Turn there. there. There's no passage in scripture that gives us a clearer vision of racial harmony and the how, how does that happen? And then what is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to walk in that? So Ephesians 2 is where we'll go. Starting in verse 11, here's what Paul said. Therefore, okay, now stop. I promise I'm gonna keep reading. I'm not gonna do this this whole time, but we, we have to actually have to stop for just a second and deal with that word, therefore, because this word is a, is a tip to us that everything that Paul is about to say is logically directly connected to something that he's already said. And if you know Ephesians, and many of you do, because it's one of the great books in the Bible, especially Ephesians 2, you know that the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 are all about our vertical relationship with God being reconciled through Christ. And it's filled with the most rich gospel language in the entire Bible. Paul starts out with this horrible news. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the prince of the, of, of the air. You were, you were living out of the desires of the body. You were by, by nature children of wrath, just the worst news you could possibly hear. And then Paul takes this pivot, this gospel pivot where he says, but God being rich in mercy has raised us in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And the Christian says, amen. And then what Paul does is he makes a pivot. And in verses 11 to 22, he talks about the horizontal reconciliation that's happened through Christ. So there's a vertical dimension to the gospel and Paul talks about that in one to 10. And then there's a horizontal dimension to the gospel and horizontal reconciliation that happens between people that is an outworking of the gospel. And Christ has accomplished both of those. And what's amazing, if you really pay attention to Ephesians, is that in both of those sections, they're organized similarly, where Paul starts out with bad news and then this, but God. And then in what we're about to read, he starts out with bad news. And then he says, but then, and they're both the heart of the gospel. So Paul says, 
therefore, now that you know all that about what Christ has done vertically, therefore, now let me show you what Christ has done horizontally. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. River West, that is bad news. Really bad, just as bad as the news Paul gave up in one through three. There couldn't be worse news. So Paul takes the same approach here. What he's doing is he's saying, before, I, before you're going to appreciate the, the vibrant, popping beauty of the good news, you got to understand just how dark it is. Paul is like a diamond salesman who rolls out the velvet. I've told you this story before about when I, when I went to buy Kathy's engagement ring and how this salesman, he was like a masterful diamond salesman. I walked into this diamond shop in downtown Salem and, and the, this guy was such a salesman and he started pulling out diamonds and he rolled out this piece of black velvet just, and he set this diamond on there. And when the diamond went on top of the black velvet, it just popped with light. And then he said to me, son, what's your budget? And I told him my budget. And he put that diamond away and he went down to the bottom drawer and he pulled out a tin can and he grabbed another diamond and he set it on there and it still popped because he knew in order to appreciate the beauty and the vibrancy and the clarity of the diamond, he sets it against the black backdrop of velvet. Paul's doing the same thing. Paul's saying in order to understand the magnitude of the reconciliation that Christ has accomplished between Jew and Gentile. This is, this is ethnic. In order, to, in order to understand that, the magnitude of that reconciliation, we have to understand the magnitude of the division that was there. And, and River West, the division that God overcomes here is more significant than any division that we face today. And that's not to minimize the divisions we're seeing in our world. It's only to say this division is unreal. It's the worst news you could possibly get. Here's how one theologian described it. He wrote, the divide between Jew and Gentiles was not small or simple or shallow. It was huge. It was massive. It was first of all religious. So it was not just racial, although it was that, or cultural, although it was that. It, it was first religious. The Jews knew the one true God and Christian Jews knew his son, Jesus, the Messiah. And for many, the Gentiles seemed utterly outside religiously. So the Jews in the blessing of being chosen had allowed themselves to become twisted in their thinking and they took on ethnocentrism and they, and they saw Gentiles as outsiders and rejected. So it started out religious and it was religious and, and the Gentiles were outside of the covenants of promise, separated from Christ, but also it was cultural, social. There were ceremonies and practices like circumcision, dietary regulations, rules of cleanliness and holy days. 
And these were designed to set Jews apart from the nations, from the ethnos, Gentiles. And then finally, it was racial, and it became racial, and it became discriminatory, and it became arrogant. So this, what, what God overcomes in Christ here is so much more significant than what we're experiencing today. And that's not to minimize racial tension. It's to say there's hope. River West, there is hope. If God can overcome this, Jew and Gentile, he can overcome anything. And more importantly, he has. So now I'm going to read on. and I want to draw your attention to the strong, worship-filled, Christ-exalting description of what God has accomplished through the cross of Christ to create racial reconciliation. Look what Paul says in that. He says, but now, there's the pivot, the gospel pivot. It's such bad news, I know. But our God is a God of good news, the gospel. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both. There's our word reconcile. It's the word reconciliation that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. Incredible. So rich. And here's what I want you to notice. We do not have to achieve racial reconciliation it exists. It has been achieved through the finished work of Christ. It's a reality that we now have to walk in. We have to live into it. We have to work it out in our relationships, but it's not something that we accomplish. We cannot accomplish it. It has been accomplished by Christ. In fact, people who try to accomplish something like this without the power of the cross, that any endeavor like that is totally futile. Christ's finished work is the power that obliterated the walls and destroyed the hostility, period. Amen? So the, the biblical way to, to interpret this passage would, would fall under these two headings, which I'll put right here reconciliation accomplished through the gospel to the power of Christ. And then secondly, reconciliation applied by the followers of Jesus as we live into it. So the question we're asking today, we're asking the question, do we understand? And maybe more importantly, do we believe what God has done through Christ to create, to accomplish reconciliation? And do we understand our role 
in working that out now, living into that and applying that. And so let me just walk through this and make some observations that I think will help you understand what Christ has accomplished. First, make no doubt about it. Make no mistake about it. This whole passage is just dripping with temple language. It's, it's, the imagery is the temple. And every Gentile hearing this would have understood with total clarity what Paul was after here. This whole language of you who are far off have been brought near, being far off and near a dividing wall. All of this was about the temple. You had the Holy of Holies, which was about being near to God, being in God's presence. And if you know about the temple, that was, that was in the heart of it. And that was only the priests would go in there at the, in, the, in the closest place you could be to the presence of God. And then there were these courts that these successive courts that spread out and the very last court, the furthest court away from the Holy of Holies was what was called the, the court of the Gentiles. It was the closest that Gentiles could get to being near to God's presence. It was the only place Gentiles could go to worship. You remember uh, when Jesus went in and cleansed the temple and people had set up booths where they were selling stuff? Yeah, it's a really interesting account. You should go read it again in Mark 11. There's, there's more going on there for Jesus than just commercialism or turning, you know, turning the temple into this place where people are making money there was a racial thing happening here. There was almost like a passive aggressive form of racism because what you may not realize is this was the only place, this court of the Gentiles, which is where Jesus went. That was the only place where the Jews would, would tolerate people setting up their tables. I don't know if you knew that. And so when Jesus tipped over the tables, he quoted a place in Jeremiah where Jeremiah says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That's the word ethnos. The heart of God is that all nations, all ethnic groups could worship. And the Jews had sort of passive aggressively allowed that to be the one place where commercialism would clutter what was going on. And Jesus rebuked them. But the other thing that's going on here, it's very clearly, it's telling us about the real reality of ethnic hostility, ethnic superiority. This dividing wall that Paul talks about, the dividing wall of hostility that gets torn down by the blood of Christ. That's actually a real, that's a reference to an actual thing, a physical wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. And you know, if you've heard sermons here, you know that archeologists, when they were digging, they discovered on that wall, this plaque. This was in the 1800s. They discovered a plaque on the wall. And here's what the plaque said. It said, no foreigners to go beyond this wall. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. If that doesn't say hostility, I don't know what does. I have great neighbors. We have a fence. Imagine if I walked out one day and my neighbor put up a sign on my side of the fence and said, if you come over the wall, you have yourself to blame for the death that's coming. I would think, wow, our relationship just got suddenly very hostile. That's what's happening here. There's a hostility 
And unless we think that that hostility was just one way, just, just Jews towards Gentiles, it wasn't. There was, a, there was tons of animosity from Gentiles towards Jews. So this was a very divided, hostile relationship. What could possibly break down the wall of hostility? And, and, and listen to this. This is an incredible insight. Paul could have decided, you know what? In, in, the, in the New Testament churches where we have Gentiles and we have Jews, it would probably just be easier to organize our churches around kind of homogenous groups. So think about this. Paul would walk into cities, he'd preach the gospel. He'd go to the synagogue first. He'd preach the gospel to Jews. And then he would always say, okay, where, where do the Gentiles hang out? And then he would go there. He would go up to Mars Hill in Athens, the, the Areopagus, or he would go to, he would, wherever the Gentiles were hanging out, and he would preach the gospel because he knew the heart of God for the nations. And what Paul could have done is, is he could have said, okay, the, now the gospel's been preached and both Jew and Gentile have come to Christ, but there's a lot of tension. It would be better if we just organized our churches into homogenous groups, but that's not what Paul did. In fact, he adamantly refused to do that. Every New Testament church was multi-ethnic. And we know this because in almost every letter that Paul wrote, he had to deal with it. He had to talk to them about how does the gospel apply to your tensions with each other? I've had River Westers ask me, hey, pastor, you know, why are we talking so much about this? We, we, we live in a community that's not very diverse. So should we be talking so much about ethnic diversity in our church? Doesn't our church represent the diversity of our community? And we could talk about that a lot, but I guess what I would say to that is, uh, well, the first thing I would say is, why is it that our community is so segregated? I mean, there's a history there that we wanna talk about, but, but more importantly, that's important, but even more importantly, why wouldn't we have a vision and a dream that Christ could create something miraculous here? Something so beautiful, something that would put on display God's heart, a beautiful vision of a community that is far more diverse than Lake Oswego. Wouldn't that be the most compelling thing in our world? Oh my gosh, I long for that. River West. And more importantly, Christ died for that, that vision. I think we should dream for that because that cost Jesus dearly. His blood. Did you notice the graphic language that Paul uses in this passage to describe what has actually made recon racial reconciliation possible? It's super graphic. Did you look at it? Look, look again, starting in, in, verse, in verse 13, Paul, Paul talks about the blood of Christ. He goes, how, how is it that you've been brought near? You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ is what has created peace. Christ has broken down the dividing wall. But how? Did you notice that? He's broken it down in his flesh. It, 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 it cost him his flesh to break down that wall. 
we've been reconciled, not, not through a program, not, but through what? The cross of Christ. He hung on a cross to accomplish racial reconciliation. It's the only thing powerful enough to, to accomplish it. And so forgive us, God, for ever having a small vision for what you could do, even in our own church. This cost Jesus dearly. This cost Jesus everything, which is why it's so beautiful and so compelling. And you notice how often Paul talks about peace. He says, Peace to you who are far, peace to you who are near. He preached peace. But did you notice the most important thing he said? He said, Jesus is our peace. Jesus didn't just bring peace. He didn't just preach peace. Jesus is our peace. It is Jesus that sits in the middle of our reconciled relationships with one another, regardless of our ethnicity, our culture, our language. I love this. And that word peace, if you know anything about it, shalom, it's so much more than just the absence of hostility. It's not just like we stop fighting with each other or we lay down arms. He's, he's, he's saying it's bigger than just, uh, than we just tolerate one another. What Paul is saying here is he's saying we actually become one another. The two become one. Christ turns the two, Jew and Gentile, into one New man. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. That's incredible. But what I want to show you is we actually become one another. This is astounding. I, I remember uh, I, when I went to Egypt, I've, I've told you about the trip that Pastor Guy and I took to Egypt last year. So many powerful things happened to me, but um, by far the most powerful experience for me was um, walking into Christian churches in Egypt and realizing this feels exactly like walking into our church right here at River West. Oh, there's all kinds of cultural differences. Absolutely. But you're, but you walk in and you, and you start to realize, oh my goodness, I have more in common with the people that are here worshiping Jesus than I have with any people in Portland who don't know Jesus. Will you listen to what I'm saying? I'm going to say that again. I, I met a, I met a, a man. He was a pastor there. His name was Cas Ben. I'll put a picture of he and I right here. And I have to tell you, when I, when I met this brother in Christ, it was, it was like within minutes I realized this follower of Jesus is going to become one of my very best friends. <laughs> and I had to fly across the globe to meet him. I remember we were having lunch one day and, and I was asking him, Ben, how can I pray for you? And he leaned in and he was like, brother, please pray that God will bring me a wife. <laughs> he's, he's pastoring this church and he's a single, single man and he so badly wanted to get married. And then right about two months after we got home from Egypt, he was 
he was chatting with me on WhatsApp and he sent me this picture. I'll put it right here with Caspen next to this beautiful woman that he had met. And I, I just did a happy dance. I ran around my living room because I knew God had answered his prayer. It was incredible. And here's the thing I want to say to you, River West. I knew when I met Caspen, I have more in common with him than I have with any white Portland male, even a guy who loves German soccer, all right? I have more in common with Kazben than I have with anyone like that if they don't know Jesus. This is the power of the cross to take people and make them one. Incredible. And Paul uses this phrase, one new man. Did you see that in verse 15? Look at it again. He says that he might create in himself one new man. That phrase is actually, it's really profound. I'm indebted to a pastor and a, and a scholar named Brian Loritz who has pointed out that when Paul says one new man, he could have used a, a couple of Greek words to, to describe something that's new. So, that word new, there's a Greek word, it's the word neos. And neos is, it describes something that's new with respect to time. It's like a, a new version of something with respect to time. But there's another Greek word and it's the word Paul uses and it's the word kainos. And this is a really interesting word. Kainos means a totally new kind of thing almost like think of like an innovation, something that's never occurred before. So this isn't just a new version of something. This is a totally new kind of thing. I kid you not, when I was praying about this this morning, I opened my email and in my inbox came an ad for the new iPhone 12 Pro. All right, it's perfect. The new iPhone. And this phone is like a technology. I mean, it looks like it fell out of the, out of the universe in, in, onto my email. The most beautiful thing, the new iPhone. And that, that, that would be new like Neos. It's a new version. Kynos would be something like the very first sundial where people discover, okay, whoever came up with this, they have literally invented a brand new thing. And that's the language Paul uses to describe the multi-ethnic church, River West. It's a completely new thing. It's supposed to blow our minds because suddenly people who had nothing in common, people who were only divided, people who had hostility towards one another are suddenly reconciled to the power of the cross, the precious blood of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want them to organize into homogenous groups. He, he's created them to be an everlasting, eternal, multi-ethnic, completely united group of worshipers. And it's a whole new thing, one new man. And Jesus died for this. This is what God is aiming for in salvation, Paul would say. Powerful, beautiful. And this is what Christ has accomplished. And the Christian should say, amen, I believe this. And then the Christian should immediately experience heartache as we deal with the reality. Our world is so broken why do we not see this more than we do? 
Why is the church hour the most segregated hour? This should grieve our hearts because Jesus spilled his blood to create this. And so what do we do? Then we begin to ask the question, okay, Lord Jesus, what are we supposed to do to begin to apply what you have already accomplished through your blood? Call us, Jesus, into something. How are we supposed to work this out? We, we, it's not something we have to achieve, all right? A great illustration, when a, when a married couple becomes estranged, we don't say to them, you need to get married. What we say to them is, you need to work this out. Come back to the table. Perhaps someone needs to ask for forgiveness or begin to make changes. That's the way to think about racial reconciliation. For followers of Jesus to say, God, what do we need to do with total humility? And so I'll transition now to the second part of what I want to talk about, which is reconciliation applied. And, you know, people have been asking me, lots of people asking me, we love this, but what do we, what do we do, pastor? Tell us what to do. And so here's an acronym that I want to use for everything I'm about to say. And I, I stole this acronym, all right? I stole it from Jamar Tisby, who's a reformed pastor and, a, and, a, and an author. And he at the, at the end of his book, The Color of Compromise, I talked about that last Sunday, he uses this acronym when he says, uh, the, the whole book has been pointing towards this. Here's what the church should do. And the acronym is ARC, A-R-C, okay? Here's how you begin to work out and work in all of the power of what Christ has accomplished. Here's how the church can work it out in our world. ARC, A, Awareness, awareness, keep growing, keep learning, keep raising your awareness. I, I, I like to say it like this, stay curious. I wanna stay curious, I wanna learn. And I don't wanna just keep learning from all the sources that I've already been learning from or sources that will just confirm my, pre, my preconceived ideas. I wanna learn from other sources. I wanna read books that make me uncomfortable. I want to build relationships with people that I've never talked to about this before. So raise your personal awareness, just as we have been raising our corporate awareness as a church. How, how, how can you do that? You say, well, first of all, I've put together with the help of the pastoral team, I've put together a list of resources. There's several books on there, a bunch of articles, some videos, documentaries. That's available in the show notes. It'll be available on our webpage. And just pick one of those things and, and, and say, I, I want to stay curious. I want to learn with humility. One of the ways you can stay curious actually leads me to the second thing, R, which is relationships. One of the ways you can stay curious is by, by building a relationship with someone who has different experiences in the world than you do ethnically. Build a relationship and, and, and talk to them. Ask them about their experience. I read in this one book that I read this powerful experience of, of a pastor who he started going to uh, people of color in his church and he began to ask them, hey, this is a totally safe environment. I just would, I'm just really curious. What is it like for you to worship here? 
And he had a question that he always asked. I thought this was so fascinating. He said, what does it cost you to be here in a church that's, that's so predominantly white? What does that cost you? And he was blown away by what people shared with him. And it just raised his awareness, right? And it also formed a beautiful relationship. So build some new relationships. We're doing that as a church. We're building relationships with other churches. We're building relationships with Pastor David Greenidge and his church. We're building relationships with other ministries. Okay? We're building a relationship with a ministry called The Contingent, which is this really profound ministry right here in Portland where they're helping to empower young leaders, people of color who need opportunities to step into to either uh, college or leadership roles or opportunities. And the contingent is really working to help with that. And our church is, is beginning a relationship with the contingent. And so we want to build relationships, both corporately, but, uh, but I would encourage you, build some relationships individually. And then finally, C. So ARC, finally C. And this is a commitment, all right? Commitment to long-term action, both individually but also corporately, we're committed to this. So we're doing lots of things. We're creating a class that we're going to be offering. Pastor Christopher and a team that he's putting together are going to create a class that will be sort of a safe place for people to have conversations about issues related to justice and, and ethnic diversity and racism. Pastor Christopher and a, and a, and a team of folks are going to are going to host a book club starting in November. So you'll be hearing more about that. But the book that he would love to read together is a book called John Perkins called One Blood. And you could buy that today on Amazon and start reading it. And then you'll hear more in the happenings about an opportunity to come together and just process in sort of a book club format what you're learning there. So there's lots of ways that we can demonstrate commitment, but, but here's a couple things I'll say just about our church. We're gonna remain committed in the way we build relationships and partnerships, but also in the way we use our resources. So in the same way that we devote financial resources to all kinds of justice initiatives internationally, because we care about justice or downtown with poverty or the elderly poor or foster care or the sex slave industry, we've also started using our resources towards ministries of reconciliation. And we created a fund where we've been using some funds to help bless churches in our community that have been disproportionately impacted by COVID. And many of those churches serve areas that are predominantly people of color. And so we're just doing some things to demonstrate commitment, A-R-C. But the most important thing, River West, is to be a church that says, we care about this. And we believe in this. Why? Because we believe the Bible. Because we love the gospel. Because we know the gospel has a vertical dimension, yes, but it also has a horizontal dimension. We care about that dimension. And we want to be a part of something beautiful happening in our world and even right here in our church. And so I'm going to pray about that this morning and then we'll worship and we'll take communion together. Will you bow your heads with me? 
Well, Father, thank you so much for the book of Ephesians, for this profound passage that we have read. This compelling reminder, Jesus, of the precious cost for you to not only reconcile us vertically in our relationship with our Father, but to reconcile us horizontally in our relationship with one another across all kinds of walls that might divide us. You have demolished those walls. It's been accomplished. And we say, hallelujah, we praise you, Jesus. And now would you give us grace and humility and wisdom and joy as we begin to work that out in our world by staying curious, by seeking awareness, by building relationships, new relationships. I pray everyone in our church would, would, would find that they're entering into a new relationship with someone who has a different experience in this world, in this country, that could be eye-opening and helpful. And just through commitment, Jesus, we're committed because we know your heart. We love you. And we pray these things together in your name. And everyone said, amen.